0: Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the UK True Crime weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Please head to our website at UKTrueCrime.com for my latest blog about the youth justice system in the UK and to sign up to our newsletter or head to Patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime to see how you could support the show or subscribe and write a review on iTunes but preferably one of the five star variety. Be good. This week we go back to August 2010 when Eminem featuring Rihanna topped the US charts with Love the Way You Lie whereas the number one slot in the UK was Club Can't Handle Me by Flo Rida featuring David Greta. Beachy Head is a chalk headland in Sussex close to the resort town of Eastbourne. It's around 75 miles south of London. The cliffs at Beachy Head is the highest chalk sea cliff in Britain rising over 530 feet above sea level. The peak allows superb views of the south coast from Dungeness in the east right through to Celsie Bill in the west. It's a magnificent spot. Beachy Head was the setting for the legend Bowie's classic video Ashes to Ashes. By the way, did you know Boy George was in that? And it's here that 80s legends The Cure recorded their videos for Close to Me and Just Like Heaven. In the 2005 film Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Beachy Head was used as the hosting grounds for the 1994 Quidditch World Cup. And then back in 1979, the final scene of Quadrophenia has Phil Daniels driving a scooter off the top of Beachy Head. Have you seen that film? Sadly, this beautiful spot is also known for suicide, with approximately 20 people a year choosing to end their lives at Beachy Head. Along with the Agohara Forest in Mount Fuji in Japan and the Golden Gate Bridge in California. Beachy Head is one of the most populous spots for suicide in the world. If you look beyond the headlines, there are some heart-wrenching stories of people who have chosen to end their lives at this place. In his book, Telling the Stories of People Who Have Taken Their Own Lives Here, Tom Hunt tells us about Elizabeth Kentish, the 39-year-old third wife of a millionaire racehorse owner and the mother of a five-year-old and a two-year-old. She told her husband that she was taking the children to the zoo several days after she complained of being persecuted by other mothers at her eldest daughter's private school. Instead, she got in the car with her children and drove off the cliffs at Beachy Head. A fireman recovered the elder daughter's body from the water and crying, he carried her to the shore. The mother and her two-year-old were still found strapped inside the partially submerged car. Rescue workers put the mother and toddler in the same body bag, along with a teddy bear that they found. A chaplaincy team operates at Beachy Head. Working closely with Sussex Police, this group of volunteers are called when it's suspected that a suicidal person has made their way to the cliffs. They estimate that they've carried out over 760 searches since 2009, resulting in over... 270 rescues each year. In August 2010, this team received a call that a potentially suicidal woman was on her way to Beachy Head to take her own life. A spokesman for Surrey Police said later of the incident, police officers and chaplains managed to escort a 56-year-old Surrey woman to safety from the cliff edge at Beachy Head after talking to her for more than three hours on Sunday afternoon. Officers had gone to the area After a report that the woman might be making her way there, and they found her car parked nearby. She was spotted at the cliff edge just before 1pm and was brought to safety shortly after 4pm. The woman, who was unhurt, was detained for a welfare assessment. That woman was Sally Challen, and today we look at the circumstances which led to her being rescued from the cliffs at Beachy Head. Sally Challen had a sheltered childhood which was blighted by the death of her dad when she was very young. She was only 16 when she first became involved with her future husband, Richard, who was four years older than her. Confident, attractive and appearing very worldly wise, she was instantly smitten by him. She was delighted that he appeared to feel the same way and the two married in June 1979 and Richard quickly became a very successful businessman developing a car dealership. Westlake Garages in Richmond, south-west London. When the children became older, Sally went back to work as an office manager at the Police Federation. They moved into a four-bedroom house in the commuter village of Claygate, which is a leafy part of Surrey, to the south of London. They had two sons, James and David, and neighbours said that they appeared very happy as a family, but tended to keep themselves to themselves. At first they were happy, but over time the strength of Richard's personality which had appealed initially to Sally it began to alter the balance of the relationship. Over the years Sally became utterly dependent on him and she could not imagine him not being part of her life. Richard exploited this by not letting her have friends of her own or to socialise without him. He increasingly controlled and isolated Sally taking away her confidence and leaving her doubting her ability to make even the most simple independent decision. Richard criticised her weight. He demanded she did everything in the house. He was even unwilling to make himself a cup of tea. And he made passive aggressive threats by withdrawing emotionally and refusing to discuss his behaviour. This behaviour later escalated as he had extramarital affairs and he took part in other activities which humiliated Sally. For example... On one occasion he had a picture taken of himself in a Ferrari surrounded by naked female models. He had this picture made into a Christmas card which was then sent out to friends of the family. I mean can you imagine how Sally must have felt to see that? Although he was very successful in his business he was financially abusive spending money on himself while the much smaller sums of money that Sally earned were used to purchase necessary household items. Around the turn of the century, when Richard started to have more obvious affairs, Sally was understandably distraught and became obsessed with his infidelities. She searched his phones, his laptops, all his equipment, his wallets. During one of her searches, Sally discovered that her husband had signed up to several dating websites to meet other women. On one, he posted a picture of himself next to a Ferrari and wrote, I live life in the fast lane. Torturing herself, she began logging her husband's use of Viagra pills to monitor his sexual activity outside the home. Documenting her suspicions in a diary of deception, some of the excerpts from 2004 provide a fascinating window into her thoughts at the time. 3rd of August 2004. Asked him for a kiss. He said he didn't want to be forced to do something he didn't want to do. 16th of August 2004. Packet of five Viagra in suit jacket. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Sixth of October two thousand and four, found receipt for Dominion Theatre for drinks on June twenty-five, when he said he was in Germany. When she confronted him about this lie, he claimed the receipt must have stuck to his shoe. Eleventh of November two thousand and four, lost three stone in stress. Twelfth of November two thousand and four. Finding London Eye tickets when he was in Germany. He doesn't know how they got there. Said he wouldn't pay for my ticket to Australia if I didn't stop asking him. The bastard. 30th of November, 2004. At this time, Richard and Sally were on a trip to Australia and to Thailand, where Sally wrote the following because she got so frustrated with his behaviour. Nothing changed. He is still the same. Embarrassing to watch. Everyone comments on it. I'm sick of being treated this way. I have my own life too. This isn't the one I want. It's because he kept leering at all the young girls around, and poor Sally was mortified and embarrassed. 16th of December 2004. I've decided, everyone agrees with me, he's a ladies' man. I'm sick and tired of his behaviour. Every time he sees a young woman, he leers. Months later, her diary recalled how she found condoms in her husband's possession but when she confronted him he responded for god's sake just give me a rest it wasn't only his wife he was deceiving in 2006 he took his ferrari to the belgian racetrack of spa but he'd not insured it and this car was worth 92000 pounds top speed 183 miles an hour he then crashed it and caused 35000 pounds worth of damage to the car but rather than telling the truth he told his insurers he'd been hit by a lorry in surrey He did confess to the truth when his insurance company became suspicious and he then had to appear in court. Richard pleaded guilty to attempting to obtain goods by deception and he was given a 51-week prison sentence, suspended for 18 months. To Sally's anger, even this was blamed on her. In court, he explained that he only tried the con because his wife had forgotten to send a fax to his insurers to get him cover for the event. One neighbour said, Richard was the laughing stock of the road after the Ferrari incident. Later in 2006, as Sally searched his phone records for clues about his cheating, to her horror she discovered a number for a local brothel, Pandora's Box, in Surbiton in Surrey. To confirm her suspicions, she drove to Surbiton one night and she sat in the car park waiting for him. To her absolute horror she saw him then arrive and go into the back of the brothel. She couldn't believe, she just couldn't believe he was going there. When she attempted to confront him about the incident, he claimed that he was selling a car to one of the girls who worked there. Just days later, on her husband's birthday, she wrote him a letter in which she described her utter disgust. In the letter she wrote, They are professionals. They do it for a living. How can I compete? I know I talk a lot and put on a lot of weight. But I didn't realize I was that bad. Despite all that he'd done in the past, this was really the final straw for Sally. She just couldn't come to terms of what he'd been doing, and she couldn't stop wondering for just how long it had been going on. She tried to stop thinking about it, but it just came back, and she constantly dwelt on it. She couldn't get the betrayal with prostitutes out of her head. To the outside world, little had changed with the couple. At just fifty-nine. A wealthy Richard retired in August 2008 and he sold his car dealership. But Sally was still haunted by his infidelity, especially with prostitutes. And in 2009, she eventually managed to leave her husband, buying a much smaller three-bedroom house nearby, using some inheritance from her mum. Soon after, Richard initiated divorce proceedings. But Sally had been so reliant on Richard for so long... She found this incredibly hard and so lonely being alone. She hadn't been allowed to socialise as so she didn't have a big network. As she told one neighbour at the time, she wanted him back as she couldn't bear being alone. She told the neighbour, I can't live with him, I can't live without him. Months later, at Sally's request, the couple attempted a reconciliation. But Richard only agreed on condition that she signed a post-nuptial agreement to avoid further financial costs should their reconciliation fail. The fact that Sally still wanted Richard despite his behaviour towards her made him even more controlling. The new start they were to have was all on his terms. The terms included, which I know it's quite hard to believe, but Sally signed an agreement forbidding her from talking too much, interrupting him or smoking. He would taunt her and gaslight her, to make her feel that she was losing her mind. Sally went to see her doctor and she was prescribed antidepressants after complaining of domestic stress, brought about by fears her husband was having affairs and using prostitutes. In turn, her behaviour became more bizarre. Sally would do anything to spy on Richard, constantly looking for evidence or confirmation of his humiliating behaviour. Although they weren't living together at this time in 2010, Sally had a key and on one occasion she visited the house in the middle of the night with a hammer in her hand. She intended to hit Richard over the head with it, but the door to his bedroom was shut, so she left the house without carrying out her plan. She also searched through rubbish bins looking for evidence of his affairs, as well as entering the house in the night on several occasions to look at the text messages on his mobile phone which he kept in his shoe next to his bed. As Sally's mental health continued to deteriorate, she'd thoughts about killing herself and had written several suicide notes. One of her common thoughts was about killing herself by swerving her car into an oncoming truck. As spring moved into summer 2010, the couple decided that in order to make a really fresh start, they had to move away. They planned to rent out their house and start all over again in Australia. On August the 14th, Sally turned up at the marital home to help clear it out and with Richard she began moving boxes. That night they had a romantic dinner planned and she was hopeful that this could be the real chance she'd been waiting for to rescue their relationship. As Richard settled down to watch the Grand Prix on the TV, Sally popped out to buy them some food for lunch. However, after returning from the shops, she noticed that Richard's phone had been moved. Unable to resist, she dialed 1471 to see the last number he had called and then dialed the number. It was a lady he had met on a dating site called Dinner Dates. Unbeknown to Sally, Richard had actually been cancelling a trip on her boat that had been planned for the next day. But convinced of his continuing infidelity, Sally's anger boiled into rage. This confirmed her suspicions that Richard's attempt at reconciliation were part of his game to get everything. Another post-noctured agreement all started to make sense to her. She calmly made Richard some lunch, and as he ate, she fetched a hammer which she brought to the address from her handbag, and she hit him repeatedly over the head, in what was an attack of extreme ferocity. 61-year-old Richard didn't stand a chance, and after being hit 25 times with the hammer, he lay dead on the floor of his house. A forensic doctor would later say that the wounds to Richard showed the attack had been severe, and when police discovered the body the following day there was a large quantity of blood on the floor. Sally had also stuffed cloth, a tea towel, into Richard's mouth until he'd stopped breathing. After killing her husband, Sally covered the body with some old curtains from the loft and went upstairs to change her clothes. She then took some paper from the printer and wrote a note which she left on Richard's body which said I love you, Sally. She then washed the dishes and drove home. She came back to the house later that evening to look through Richard's briefcase, check his computer, and listen to any messages on his phone. The following day, Sally drove her son David to work and then made her way to Beachy Head. She wrote a suicide note which she left in her car. In it, Sally claimed that Richard had been having numerous affairs and used prostitutes during their 31-year marriage. I then found out that he was seeing someone and sleeping with them and had no intention of taking me back, the note said. It was all a game so he could get everything. I can't live without him. He said it would take time but he felt the same. But now I find he is seeing and sleeping with them, all these prostitutes and other women. How could he? Sally called her cousin, Suzanne. She confessed to murdering Richard and said she was now going to jump off the cliff. In a state of panic, Suzanne called the police, and the suicide team and the chaplain raced to the cliff top where they quickly found Sally. When asked about what had happened, Sally said that she was certain her husband was dead. When asked how it happened, she said, I killed him with a hammer, I hit him lots of times. She added, If I can't have him, no one can. After three hours talking with Sally, she was finally coaxed away from the cliff edge to safety. After being talked down and arrested, she again told police, it was all a game so he could get everything. If I can't have him, no one can. In June 2011, Sally Challen faced a charge of murder at Guildford Crown Court. Sally admitted killing Richard, but she denied murder, claiming diminished responsibility. During the trial, Sally's defense tried to convince the jury that she had killed her husband while suffering from depression and was therefore not guilty of murder. They heard from a psychiatrist who'd interviewed her on three occasions following her arrest the previous August, who said that in his opinion, she was suffering from a depressive condition of moderate severity. The prosecution didn't agree, with their barrister saying, This was planned. This was thought through. She was consumed by jealousy, suspicion and anger, and made a conscious decision to kill her husband in the most brutal way. Although a lot of Sally's behaviour appeared bizarre, for example, she changed her trousers after killing her husband because she was afraid they looked silly, the prosecution painted a very different picture from a woman suffering from mental illness. Instead, they suggested Sally had made a conscious and calculated decision to kill her husband because she was so consumed by jealousy. The jury heard from another psychiatrist who had also interviewed Sally on several occasions after her arrest. His view was there was nothing psychologically wrong with her and she'd killed Richard in a fit of anger. After over 11 hours of deliberations, the jury delivered their verdict. They unanimously found her guilty of murder, agreeing with the prosecution's case that Sally had made a conscious and calculated decision to kill her husband after discovering he had that day been in contact with another woman we would met on the internet. Jailing her for a minimum of 22 years, Judge Christopher Critchlow told her, You are somebody who has killed the only man you had known and loved, and you'll have to live knowing what you have done. The judge added, You found yourself being eaten up with jealousy at his friendships with other women. You didn't want that, and as you have said, you decided that if you couldn't have him, nobody would. Several members of her family broke down in tears after the verdict. And Sally looked in despair towards her two sons, David and James, in the public gallery as she was led away from the dock. Later that year, in November 2011, she was again in court to appeal against her sentence. The Lord Chief Justice, sitting with two of the judges, reduced the minimum term by four years to 18 years in prison. This year, in January 2017, Sally lodged grounds of appeal against conviction relying on fresh evidence of coercive control, which is a relatively new concept, only introduced into English law in December 2015. I'm sure you'll agree that this is a difficult case to listen to. Although it was Richard who lost his life in a violent attack, it's open to question who is the real victim here. I think many would argue it is in fact Sally, after being subjected to years of abuse. Although Richard did not subject Sally to physical violence, it can be argued that his controlling, isolating and humiliating behaviour over the years meant that he didn't need to. Even on the very day that she murdered Richard, this was after Sally found out he was still seeing other women he'd met on dating sites on the eve of the New Start together, and after he'd made her go out in the rain to buy bacon and eggs to cook him lunch while he sat down and watched the motor racing. Hopefully, the new law around coercive control will provide opportunities for others to escape the absolute horror and suffering of domestic abuse. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. That's all for me for now, so I will speak to you next week. Cheerio.